It's Tuesday, December 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Inspector General report into the origins of the 2016 Russia probe is out, and it has a little something for everyone. The report says that the probe was not tainted by any political bias, which should dispel notions of a deep state, but it also found that there were serious performance failures by some FBI officials, which should make President Trump happy. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill, joins us for the top takeaways. Next, American factories are starting to demand a white-collar education for blue-collar work. Within three years, U.S. manufacturing workers with college degrees will outnumber those without. The shift toward automation and efficiency has opened the door to more women and reduced the prospects for lower-skilled workers. Austin Hufford, manufacturing reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Finally, the impeachment of Donald Trump seems to be close on the horizon. The Judiciary Committee heard from counsel outlining the impeachment case against the president, and Democrats are preparing formal charges. Bart Jansen, justice reporter at USA Today, joins us to recap the hearing full of protester outbursts and lawmaker fights. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. To disgrace what's happened with respect to the things that were done to our country, it should never again happen to another president. It is uh, incredible, far worse than I would have ever thought possible. Joining us now is Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Thanks for having me. The long-awaited report into the origins of the 2016 Russia probe has been released. It was done by the Justice Department's Inspector General Michael Horowitz, and he found a lot of serious performance failures by some FBI officials throughout the process, but ultimately concluded that the investigation was not tainted by political bias. So there's a little bit of something for everybody in this report. Brett, tell us some of the highlights from what we learned. Like you said, Oscar, it's kind of there's something for everybody, something for both sides to hang their hats on. The inspector general's sort of the top line finding was that political bias did not influence the FBI decision to launch an investigation into the Trump campaign looking at potential Russian interference in the 2016 election. And the inspector general found that this investigation was properly predicated. They had sort of the authorization and what they needed to go ahead with this investigation. But on the flip side, they did find that there were some serious flaws in certain aspects of how they conducted the investigation, most notably with one of the FISA applications or applications to monitor a former Trump campaign aide, Carter Page. So that latter point about the sort of breakdown in the FISA process is something that the president and his Republican allies are really kind of seizing on to paint the FBI as corrupt or that they didn't follow the proper process. So like we said, there's certainly something that both sides can argue coming out of this report. One of the things that we kept hearing, and I think the Attorney General William Barr also said that it seemed like they might have been spying on the campaign. And from the report, we did learn that they did use confidential human sources, but they never placed an informant within the Trump campaign. And that's something that some of the conservative allies of the president have really kind of circulated that theory that essentially the FBI set up the Trump campaign or that they, you know, had it out for this campaign from the beginning and that they had placed a confidential source. This report dispels that and essentially, you know, between that and stating pretty clearly that political bias did not play a role in determining whether to launch this investigation. Those are kind of key talking points that Republicans have tried to hammer home for months and months that this report pretty clearly cuts down. So help us understand this a little bit better. While the report says that the starting the investigation was okay and everything was done on the up and up, 
uh, along the way there was serious missteps. So could we maybe believe that the surveillance of some of these people within the campaign might not have gone on if uh, you know some of these FISA applications were filled out correctly? So we could have started it and then it might have fizzled out. Is that kind of what the understanding would have been? So the report kind of hints at this, that it's impossible essentially to know, had things been followed to a T, had the protocols been followed to a T, whether the FBI would have been able to continue monitoring these Trump campaign aides, or if it would have been, as you said, fizzled out, and there wouldn't have been enough for them to go on, essentially. So that's sort of the what if that that we don't really know. But certainly, I think that's something you'll see the president and his supporters really seize on the fact that there was this sort of breakdown in the application process for this FISA warrant. The attorney general has weighed in. He says he does not agree with this report, that they really did this on the thinnest of suspicions that weren't sufficient to justify any of these steps taken. U.S. Attorney John Durham, who is also doing another report for Attorney General William Barr looking into this very same thing, says that he also doesn't really agree with the findings of Horowitz's report and that his report, which is due out soon, we don't know when, we'll have some other evidence really painting the FBI in a bad picture. There was some expectation that the attorney general would try and distance himself from some of these findings, but still to see the attorney general so publicly and clearly break with the department's own inspector general was quite surprising, I think, for a lot of people. And it really just spurred these allegations from Democrats and and from William Barr's critics that he's essentially defending the president rather than defending the Department of Justice and the rule of law. So he did come out and say that he felt the FBI was moving on uh, the thinnest of suspicions, I believe was the phrase he used, and that it was an intrusive investigation to the Trump campaign. So you saw him essentially kind of side with the president here and downplay some of the key findings of the inspector general's report. I think that will only further criticism of, of William Barr, but certainly I think it will please the president. President Trump has weighed in also saying that this was an overthrow of the government, an attempted overthrow. So not happy with what was in that report. Maybe the top line, he might not have been happy, but I'm sure he's enjoying some of the other stuff with the misconduct by the FBI, at least on that front. And he's looking forward to this John Durham report due out whenever. We've heard the president kind of use this sort of bombastic language dating back to the Mueller investigation to frame it as an attempted overthrow, to say it's a disgrace, to say it's an embarrassment. And certainly there are aspects of this that are embarrassing for the FBI. But as you mentioned, I think the president is looking to kind of get what he can out of this report and paint the FBI as biased against him, even though that was not really the finding. And he'll be looking forward to that Durham report, which from all indications, that will be sort of even more narrowly focused on some of the allegations that the president and his supporters have really been touting for months now. The FBI director, Christopher Ray, I think he's going to be implementing a bunch of changes to maybe help with some of this stuff in the future. He was quick to point out, you know, that the report found that the Bureau was not politically motivated in launching this investigation and that the Bureau cooperated with the inspector general's investigation. So he was quick to highlight those things. But yeah, so he said, I believe it's more than 40 corrective measures that the FBI is taking. Most of them are based on specific things that the inspector general laid out that he said the FBI should try and correct moving forward as a result of some of these breakdowns in the FISA process or in its use of confidential human sources. So there's a a number of things that we'll be seeing the Bureau doing kind of moving forward to address what this report found. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They're basically removing a lot of the rote physical work 
and instead need people who can operate the machines, program the machines, and design their products. And so what that means is that U.S. manufacturing is increasingly becoming a highly educated, highly skilled workforce. Joining us now is Austin Hufford, manufacturing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Austin. Glad to be here. In about three years' time, U.S. manufacturing workers with college degrees will outnumber those without. These factories are starting to demand a white-collar education for blue-collar work, and a lot of it has to do with automation and how the industry is changing. We don't need that manual labor so much anymore with the rise of technology and machines that are starting to do this work. We need the people that can actually handle those machines. Austin, tell us a little bit about this. As manufacturing companies here in the States invest in their facilities, they're basically removing a lot of the rote physical work and instead need people who can operate the machines, program the machines, and design their products. And so what that means is that U.S. manufacturing is increasingly becoming a highly educated, highly skilled workforce. Tell us a little bit about how it's all changing, though, because when you hear people talk about we need more manufacturing jobs we need to get this uh, all these people back to work well it's just not the same anymore and it's not as easy as revitalizing the manufacturing industry the people need to have the proper education now to be in there you hear politicians and policymakers talking about this idea of bringing back factories to the states again and if that even happens it means more jobs for the people who are already highly educated it's unclear if, if someone who is a high school dropout or just has a high school degree where they could fit in sort of this newer economy how is the manufacturing industry doing as a whole are we still continually adding new jobs there or are we still kind of facing some competition from other places other countries things like that there is still a ton of competition and growing competition around the world and especially in, in lower income countries like China and even Mexico. But since the recession, there has been a lot of growth in manufacturing jobs. So basically, there's been more than a million manufacturing jobs added, but we are still a third below the peak of manufacturing of 20 million in the 1970s. One of the companies that you profiled in your article, Pioneer Service, Inc., they're a machine shop in Chicago, and they used to make a bunch of other stuff. The owner saw what was changing. They weren't able to really pay the bills with what they were making, and they started making more complex parts for cars. But with that came the need for new machines, new technology. So tell us that story and tell us how it impacted the workers there, because they had a tough time transitioning over. Pioneer Service has invested more than $6 million in new machines, new software, and training for their employees. I walked into the facility a few months ago, and it's clean and quiet, and you have one employee operating multiple machines. Probably a decade ago, things would have been very different. These machines would have been having oil everywhere. It would have been much dirtier. You would have had probably at least one worker, if not more, operating each machine. They had hammers and big wrenches, and it was just a much more physical job. But the company's owner and, and the workers tell me that the transition was not easy for the workers. Only a handful of the production workers remain. They said it was really hard for them to learn going from a, a very hands-on, physical, almost artisanal job to one where you're using a touchscreen and entering advanced controls into these machines. And most of those workers ended up leaving during the transition. I think these machines now can make one complex part every six minutes compared to 45 minutes of work that it used to take to produce like a single part. So, I mean, for the company... That's great. You have so much more output, but 
on the worker it demands so much more of you in a different way. Like we've been saying, it's not that manual labor, but you need to punch in these codes. And a lot of those workers that she had had difficulty that you said they're not even there anymore, right? I spoke to a man who had been there for a very long time, more than a decade, and now he's working in construction. He just said that he couldn't keep the numbers straight in his head and that it was difficult learning how to work with these machines. And he tried and he took different classes that the company offered, but he just wasn't able to make the transition. He says he's happy now and that he enjoys having a change of pace after being in manufacturing for his entire career. But you also have to wonder, what's the future for workers like him? This is kind of a cautionary tale for both sides of the equation. For people that are going to school, it just proves you still need to get a degree. You still need to go as far as you can because then you can work on these machines. You can code these types of factories and whatnot. On the flip side, for somebody that maybe is not as adept in school, you can't rely on these manufacturing jobs anymore because they're increasingly giving way to automation and robots and technology. Exactly. And and I guess one thing I would keep in mind is that deciding the types of skills that you're going to learn is really important. These manufacturing workers aren't hiring English majors from Ivy League schools. They're hiring people who know how to weld, who know how to operate, you have CNC degrees. In my understanding is that if you are choosing a career or a degree now, just be very careful with what you're choosing. Austin Hufford, manufacturing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. President Trump violated his oath to the American people. He placed his own private interests ahead of our national security and the integrity of our elections and constitutes a continuing threat to the integrity of our elections and to our democratic system of government. Joining us now is Bart Jansen, justice reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Bart. Thanks for having me. The House Judiciary Committee is underway right now, hearing evidence for more on the impeachment inquiry. Nothing new really being presented here. They're just kind of laying out all the facts as if it were almost like if it was a trial. There was an interesting moment where a protester stood up and started shouting out at the Democrats saying Trump is innocent and America is tired of this. Tell us about that and then we'll get into what we're learning during the testimonies here. The excitement started right as Chairman Jerry Nadler gaveled the hearing open. He was just starting to explain what the rules would be, and a bearded gentleman in the back of the room stood up. It's a fairly large room. There were probably about 350 seats for the public, press, Congress members who are not on the panel, and audience. And so in the back of the room, this man stood up. He yelled that Democrats were set on impeachment, that they shouldn't try to impeach him, that Trump was elected president. And so two uh, Capitol police officers escorted him out. The entire exchange lasted something around 34 seconds. So it wasn't long and it didn't really interrupt the hearing, but it was a flashy start. There was a lot of tense moments between lawmakers. I don't think I've ever heard a point of order yelled out so much. There's just a lot of disagreements on how everything's being laid out. Part of it is just how the format of the hearing was set up in a way that makes it very partisan. Technically, they had the presentation of the Judiciary Committee's report on potential articles of impeachment, and then that was followed by the Intelligence Committee's presentation of their report about what might become articles of impeachment, and they're the ones that dealt with Ukraine, so that's what people are talking about. But part of the reason for the heightened partisanship is that both reports were presented by committee staffers, lawyers for the committees, one Democrat, one Republican. And in a really unusual step, the Democratic Judiciary 
lawyer who presented the report then took the dais sitting next to Chairman Jerry Nadler and began asking questions of the second panel dealing with the intelligence report. The Republicans really bristled at that. They've been critical of having staffers presenting the reports at all. So it heightened the partisanship. So Barry Burke gets over there and the message is we can't let the president go unpunished for the conduct here because it's going to embolden him and future presidents to abuse power in other ways. And on the Republican side, they just say this is all hearsay. And I think Mr. Kasser, who is their counsel, called the whole thing baloney. He was saying that the evidence in the reports is riddled with hearsay and presumptions and wouldn't justify removing a president. But as you say, the Democrats contend that the behavior is so outrageous and by dealing with the 2020 election threatens the democracy even, because if you allow anyone to taint the election, that you wouldn't maybe be able to trust the results. So very harsh feelings on both sides about it. The president, for his part, he was offered the opportunity to have lawyers and other counsel there. They refused that. I mean, for them, it kind of is a waste of time. It, it all seems but certain that he will be impeached in the House and then on to the Senate trial. And that's really where they're going to spend the majority of their time and effort there, making the case there, and then also framing it in a way as this was a big waste of time because he has Senate Republicans in his corner on this one. There's been the impression from the president's side that the investigation from the start through special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation to the current probe of his dealings with Ukraine has all been just an unfair partisan witch hunt and unfair enough that he is not going to participate. So the White House sent a letter on October 8th saying, we're not going to even respond to your subpoenas. We're not going to send people to testify. Now, many, several administration officials testified anyway, and that's why we had the hearings in recent weeks. But there's great expectation among everyone involved that the House controlled by Democrats will vote to impeach President Trump on one or more articles of impeachment before the end of the year, and then that would send the issue to the Senate. Now, the Senate is controlled 53-47 by Republicans. In order to remove a president, you need a two-thirds vote. So there's going to be a lot of attention on the Senate trial, but you would need 20 Republicans yeah. to abandon the president in order to remove him. And so I think Trump feels pretty safe with the Senate trial. House Republicans are asking for Adam Schiff to testify. They want him to talk about what he knew about the whistleblower. Does he know the whistleblower, all that stuff? Will he be brought back up in the Senate side of things again, do you think? That's the threat. President Trump himself has said that he would like to call Schiff the whistleblower and Joe Biden, the person that the request for investigations was all about. And so I guess uh, Democrats think that they can block or prevent subpoenas for those people. Uh, Democrats have argued that the whistleblower deserves to remain anonymous, that a uh, chairman from one chamber shouldn't be forced to testify before another chamber. So I think Democrats think that they will be able to block that testimony. But yes, the Republicans in both chambers want to hear from Schiff. They think that he could provide information about the whistleblower, just about the basis for the entire complaint. Bart Jansen, justice reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.